The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely ours and not necessarily part of any organization, committee, or other individual. Hello and welcome to Shalom Salam Peace of Mind podcast. My name is Shireen and I'm going to be moderating this podcast today. We're going to be discussing our protective factors and risk factors within our own personal narratives. Here with us today is Remy, Katie, and Ahmed, and myself. Um, we, when I say risk factors, we're going to be talking about um, factors within our environment that put us at a greater risk of developing a mental health issues. And when we speak on protective factors, we're going to be speaking about factors that help buffer people who have an increased risk factor potential from developing mental health issues. Um, and starting with us today is Remy. They're going to be speaking on their personal narrative and sharing what has helped them protect them from developing mental health issues that might disrupt their daily function. So Remy, take it away. Wow. Hi, everyone. I'm Remy. I'm black and I identify as queer and I am a Muslim. I'm from St. Louis, Missouri, originally. And as I go on about my risk factors, I think that's a part that um, definitely has stood out when in like very urban communities, such as LA, like here, where there's so much violence. The same could be said of St. Louis, which often maintains a particularly high murder rate. Um, so when I think about risk factors for my mental health, I, I, I do think of all those identities that um, I'm holding right now, um, being black and Muslim and queer. Because for me, those are three communities that I think are particularly, um, you know, there's anti-blackness, there's transphobia, there's homophobia. And then we're here speaking today in the wake of the New Zealand terrorist attack. So there is Islamophobia, as we can see, that has reached a more mainstream outlet. So those are things that, um, so speaking broadly of risk factors, growing up in St. Louis, uh, being black, being poor are definitely things that, um, did, don't don't help mental health. Um, so there's been enough fortune in my life where I think um, dealing with those types of uh, that that environment that can be very triggering and harmful for um, a lot of people and people I've grown up with. I was more fortunate that my my mom, most importantly, like my mom, is my protective factor, and I think. That has to be emphasized that parenting and mothering, not just um, as a uh, biological parent, um, but mothering is a tactic for healing and for us to live our lives. That's not a gendered thing. Um, but my mother made sure, I'm the second of her children, and she made sure that once I was born, we like moved out of the hood, which is like, you know, like, I, I used to go back to the area that we lived in to play tennis in high school. It's this place called Fairgrounds Park. But, like, around there, it's, like, a lot of abandoned buildings. 
and like over policing and like you know drugs and stuff but I went to like public school and then there's in St. Louis there's a gifted tract for learning so like on that you know you have more access to like computers and teachers who actually want you to learn um another big protective factor like teachers who want you to learn (laughs) um so that's been big but before we did our show there's like a list you can find it online if you want to look shout out to all the listeners out there if you want to find it online there's a list of mental health protective factor resources and it you can measure your environment basically and the things that they have are social support coping skills physical activity sense of purpose self-esteem and healthy thinking and for our particular podcast shalom salam i was wondering how we connect that back to our spirituality as one of our protective factors because Islam has definitely been one of my major protective factors because I know when I was first experiencing anxiety in uh, college, um, just from like this this new amount of work and just like being thrust into this um, like hyper protected and wealthy environment. And then I'm like, oh, oh, snaps. I am like, I was like black and poor and like, everything's like different and like it's just a whole lot of different stuff to deal with and that's when I like really delved into um learning about spirituality and when I did like people always ask me like why did I convert to Islam that's like too many reasons I think it's a hard enough question um to think about when you ask anyone why they're like doing a particular <laughs> spirituality or following a particular faith but for me one of the things that stood out in the Quran was having God as this uh, ultimate protector, our friend. And that definitely sat with me when I decided to convert. And I know that in times, me praying or me reading Quran would be very helpful, helping me cope with anxiety or stress. Now, on the flip side, I do wear my still being Muslim, but I'm still trying to navigate what that means for me um, along the lanes of law and rule and, and, and how we're like governed by social life, like learning how to meditate and how to breathe, like things that are iterated, I think have been iterated throughout life and like eating healthy and exercising, which is a privilege, I think. Exercising is totally a privilege as an able-bodied person that I get to have and having a nice um, feeling comfortable in my health. Um, But yeah, like dance, art, music, singing, breathing, sitting, like those are all things that have been great um, protective factors for me while still adhering to this faith. Thank you so much, Remy. Thank you for sharing that you have converted to Islam and you have come from a background that was full of different risk factors and you've been able to find spirituality as a supportive element in protecting you from that. Um, I'm sure a lot of listeners can relate to that. All right, moving forward, Ahmed, 
um, is going to share with us his personal narrative on the risk factors he's been surrounded by in his upbringing and what protective factors have supported him. So take it away, Ahmed. Thanks, Shireen. I'm not sure where to start because I think the risk factor that I used to have during my childhood is probably different than what I currently have because I am currently living in Los Angeles. So I was born in Indonesia, which is the biggest Muslim-majority country in the world at the moment, and I went to Sunni Islamic school since I was in kindergarten. For the first half of my life, I grew up in a totally different culture than the Judeo-Christian culture in the States, and it is also different from Muslim cultures in the Middle East and subcontinent India regions. Now, I would consider myself as an average Muslim living in the City of Angels. I also consider myself as a moderate and practicing Muslim because I uphold the five pillars of Islam and maintain the six pillars of Islamic faith in my heart, which is also known as the six axioms of belief. Since I'm not a psychologist, I guess what could be considered risk factors for me since I moved to LA is the fact that I'm living in the USA, which is a superpower country where the society gives privileges to white people or rich people in subtle ways. But I was born in a third world country with a non-white European phenotype that speaks a different language. So, even though I took some English classes back home before I moved, sometimes language and the usage of it in the society still gives me a bit of insecure feelings. Another possible risk factor for me is the custom and norm of living in Los Angeles. In my experience, it is a very different lifestyle than the culture that I was accustomed to during my formative years. So there was a phase in my life when I experienced major culture shock. I think it was in the first few years after I moved, where I had to adapt to a new culture in order to assimilate and live in Los Angeles. However, not everything in American culture that I learned resonated with me very well. For example, the culture of consumerism and materialism. I mean, I really do not like it when I found myself accidentally generated a personal value that's originated in commercials, such as diamond engagement rings. I mean, I used to believe that if I were to propose to a woman for an engagement, I must impress her with a diamond engagement ring. And that ring should worth at least three months of income. <laughs> Because the more bling it has, the higher the chance that she would say yes. <laughs> Luckily, I read about how the De Beers Corporation successfully manipulated the value of diamonds. I found out that diamonds are not rare stones since the American Civil War era. Another thing that I found out is that De Beers did a brilliant marketing campaign for manufacturing a perception that diamonds symbolize lasting commitment and love towards marital relationship. So it made me feel like a sucker because I couldn't remember when did I give consent to the beers or other companies to have a freedom to occupy my consciousness with continuous bombardment of advertisements whenever I turn on TV, use cell phone or iPad, or just browsing the internet regardless what time of day it is. However, capitalism is not an alien experience for me because when I grew up back home, materialism is already present and felt. With that said, now I'm going to share a few things that might be considered as protective factors. One thing that usually works best for me is by adopting spiritual principles as best as I could, such as consciousness of God and reliance on God Almighty. In my case, since I'm a Muslim, I follow Islam and practice Islamic faith. If I'm not mistaken, there's a divine sacred text in the Holy Quran that says something like, 
Put your trust in God, because God Almighty is worthy of trust. However, I'm the kind of guy that like to do my due diligence, and so I found another divine sacred text that says, God does not burden any human being with more than he is well able to bear. That one is verse 286 from chapter 2 of the Holy Quran. So I like it because it sounds like a merciful God to me. But the best reminder that I usually like to go back to whenever the going gets tough is verse 5 and 6 from a chapter called The Solace that literally says, Certainly, with every hardship there is a way out, and indeed with every hardship comes ease. So for me, I would likely use spiritual reasoning in order to find some kind of psychological aid when I found myself having difficulty in life. On a side note, to me, a developing phenomenon that may become a community-level risk factor is the growing Islamophobia across the globe, because Islam, sometimes portrayed as an ideology, in trending Islamophobic narratives, rather than religion as it has always been for centuries, since before profitable oil industry established in the Middle East. Also, Islamophobes who make money from the existence of Islamophobia industry, including Islamophobes who have Persian, Daisy, or Arabic names, in my view, indirectly partake in the attempts to have Muslims to be classified as a race, similar to how the Nazi Germany classified Jewish people as a race, in order to block religious liberty for Muslims that's protected under the First Amendment of U.S. Constitution. But, contrary to popular Islamophobic discourses, Islam is pretty much a divine religion just like Judaism or the Gospel of Jesus in Christianity. One more possible positive factor that I think is helpful for me is the drive to take action in order to seek more knowledge because, for me, it's pretty much a way to be a practicing Muslim. I mean, one of the earliest divine revelations sent down for humankind via the Prophet Muhammad, may peace be upon him and his family, is the verses in which the Prophet was instructed to read. The verses go something like, and I'm paraphrasing the first six verses of a chapter in the Quran called The Stages of Embryo or the Blood Clot. Read, read in the name of your sustainer in life who has created everything, the God Almighty who has created humankind from a clot of blood. Read, and you'll find your sustainer is the most generous one, the Lord who imparted knowledge to humankind via the instrument of pen, who taught humankind what they did not know. To me, the last two verses highlighted the importance that I would likely know less than what I thought about a problem that I may face or other matter. It also encouraged curiosity to read more or do more research on something. And in the end, who knows, I may find some new truth. For this reason, one coping mechanism that sometimes works for me is to rethink my difficult situation from a new angle or a new paradigm. However, challenging my negative beliefs or thoughts during moments where I found myself overwhelmed with a difficult emotion is not an easy task to do. But if I manage to do it successfully, reframing is a very helpful method. The spiritual reasoning for it is the concept in Islam where any bad thing could be turned into a good thing, simply by keep doing good deeds in order to reverse the consequences of bad deeds. I believe the divine sacred text about this concept 
is written in the Holy Quran, chapter 11, verse 114 or 15. I'm not quite sure, but I know it's there. So, reframing works for me, because I believe human has the free will to do almost anything in life, but there is a divine higher power who regulates the universe and all things in it, and we are a small part of that things in the universe. And I also realize that not everything is under my control, so it sort of lifted tons of burden off my shoulders. Another resources that I tend to use if I couldn't understand sacred texts in the Quran, after reading a dozen or so English translations, is by digging in further in the authentic sayings of the Prophet Muhammad. One reason for me to do research in his authentic sayings is because the Prophet was a human being who dealt with many challenges in life. I mean, he was a prophet of God Almighty who faced a full range of psychological stressors such as grief and loss, persecution and war, rejection and betrayal, migration and humiliation, among many other things. And yet, the prophet managed to be one of the greatest men in the history of humankind. So basically, I would try to find out what did he do from the perspective of him as a father, a nephew, an uncle, a community leader, or commander-in-chief, because I am sure there are gems scattered here and there that are beneficial for me. One example, there's a saying of the prophet in the At-Tirmidhi collections that says something like, Whoever treads a path in seeking knowledge, God Almighty will make easy for him or her the path to paradise. The last spiritual coping mechanism that's quite helpful for me is the habit of doing Islamic prostration properly. If I could do the prostration correctly, I would feel naturally at peace. And I guess the cumulative periodic moments of internal peace somehow provides a relief. I mean, when I correctly bow down and place my forehead on the ground with the intention for humbling myself, at the same time I glorify and realize the majesticness of God Almighty by utilizing the third eye for example, I will likely feel at ease and in peace. I don't know why it works, but I remembered when I was watching one of the Usuli Institute videos on YouTube, Professor Khalid El-Fadl mentioned something like, The act of doing proper Islamic prostration, or sujud, is like planting a seed of courage in one's heart. What I understood is like, the more I do sujud in heartfelt way, with mindfulness, the more God Almighty nurtures courage in my heart. Professor Khalid also made a reference to Malcolm X and his story about prostration. In my personal understanding of it, one of the benefits of making sujood is the ability to resist subordination. I think what he said is pretty accurate, because Malcolm X is a very inspiring American Muslim figure just like the late Muhammad Ali. So to me, in the context of personal well-being, the ability to resist subordination also includes the ability to resist the gloomy and depressing nature of despair or depression by naturally having a courage to have hope. And hope is quite a powerful asset to have in my heart for living my life in this world. In my opinion, many practicing Muslims would likely make prostration around 34 times a day at the least. So that's like having 34 chances to get divine psychological relief every day. The last thing I want to add is that 
Even though I've shared coping mechanisms that are helpful for me in a cognitive behavioral or practical common sense way, sometimes though, they don't always work. When this situation happens, I would have to go and seek professional help, like going to a therapist. I feel like going to someone who knows more about something is also my approach to be a practicing Muslim. In my experience, I had a very surreal event during pubescence when I was in front of the Kaaba. And that experience, I couldn't process it for decades. Eventually, I had to consult it with a Muslim psychologist who I trust and felt has a sound Islamic spiritual knowledge for the sake of my mental well-being. Sharing the experience with someone else who's knowledgeable and the other person also was listening attentively while having my best interests at heart were a beneficial process for me. Afterward, my mind was extremely relieved. In hindsight, if I was a part of a respectable Sufi path for spiritual learning, or if I had excellent grasp of the inner dimension of Islam, like the famous Persian Sufi poets in the West back from the golden age of Islamic civilization era, poets such as Hafez, Umar Khayyam, or Rumi, I might not need to see a psychologist, and I would have saved myself a few bucks because the cost to be seen by legit therapists in LA is not inexpensive. Fortunately, in the Islamic Center of SoCal in Koreatown, Los Angeles, they provide mental health services that offer sliding scale, which makes it affordable. This sliding scale would be helpful for people who doesn't have access to therapists through work or other means, or health insurance that doesn't cover mental health expenses. So, with that said, that's my reflection for this podcast, Shireen. Thank you so much, Ahmed. That was beautifully said. I think Remy can really relate to the fact that spirituality tends to be a protective factor that can help really remind yourself that everything is happening in a manner that it's supposed to. And that, like you said, you can only, you're only going to be given what you can bear. Um, I know I can relate to that. I'm sure listeners can as well. Imagine what assimilating to America was like way back when. But um, yeah, thank you so much. Stay tuned for more information. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely ours and not necessarily part of any organization, committee, or other individual. Hello, everyone. I would love to share with you my personal narrative on my upbringing and what risk factors I've dealt with and what protective factors have supported me through life. Um, So I'm 25 years old. I'm a Muslim Egyptian American. I was raised in an upper middle class family to two very loving, supportive Muslim American parents, both who have graduate level degrees. Um, My father has a PhD in material science and engineering and my mother a master's in toxicology. And the reason I bring that up is because I think I really feel privileged to have such support from two parents, as well as support from two educated parents who have really instilled this value of the power of knowledge within my sister and I. They taught us to question and to find reason and understanding behind those questions. Um, At a young age, they placed us in a private Muslim school called New Horizon, 
um, where we uh, attended from preschool all the way up until eighth grade. And for those 13 years, I learned everything from English to science to math to history, as well as Quran, Islamic studies, and Arabic. Um, I was surrounded by like-minded people who not only embrace the same religion, but embrace similar traditions. They even spoke the same languages. And Islam was not something that was really a choice. It was something that was woven into our daily life, whether that be a midday prayer right after lunch, or in the way we dressed, we wore uniforms where we would wear long sleeves up until our wrists and skirts down to our ankles. Ramadan, our month of fasting, was something that was accepted by all. It was understood and seen as the norm. I felt like the majority within my community, and I wouldn't even know what it meant to be a minority because I had little to no exposure to anyone else who really thought or lived differently than I. It wasn't until I graduated from middle school and stepped into high school at um, in La Cañada, a small suburban town, um, that I began that exposure towards people who embrace different faiths, who dress differently. Suddenly wearing long sleeves and long skirts was seen as unattractive and uncool. Um, people uh, quite frankly look differently than I as well. And it was a lot to take in, a lot to absorb. And I dealt with feelings of anxiety and misunderstanding and confusion as to how I can assimilate while also really understanding why I embrace the values that I do embrace. Um, I was faced with question during the month of Ramadan when I would be fasting. It seemed like something that was strange and almost weird to not be eating during the day, although I, was, although I tried to protest and say, you know, I, I eat dinner at night, I swear. Um, I almost felt like I needed to defend myself. And the list could go on on the number of ways that I felt pretty disconnected. but. One thing that I was really grateful for was the constant that was at home. It didn't matter how many changes were taking place outside of my home because the second I returned to my home base, I was fed by my family. I sat down at a dinner table and we discussed our lives. Um, Arabic still stayed as a constant language spoken in the household. Quran was something that was referenced on and off throughout the day. And um, I still felt like I belonged when I went home. But with that, I had little to no opportunity to feel comfortable, to question and see if there were values that I may want to take on that my parents may disagree with. Um, so I was definitely dealing with this identity crisis in a sense. Um, now upon graduating from high school and stepping into college, I left my small town of La Cañada in Southern California and moved up to Northern California in the hippy-dippy town of Santa Cruz. I attended Santa Cruz for four years and I was not only surrounded by people of different cultures and religions, um, but I was surrounded by people of different gender identities, sexual identities, and um, you bet there were a lot of questions that came up. I was curious and my curiosity ignited. I met people from all different walks of life and the one that really hit home and invited me to really push forward in my personal identity growth was meeting my college boyfriend who was an Israeli Jew. Um, he tested me to really recognize why it is that I've mentally embraced so many values and 
why I have not really transferred those mental thoughts into a heart space of real deep faith. Um, So throughout our relationship, I found some strong protective factors, which was really studying my text. What is it that brought light into my life at a young age and that my parents hold so dear and near to their heart? And um, alongside that, I got really into, like Remy was saying, meditation and yoga. And I dove deep into my body, into my mind, into my soul. And I recognized that the values of treating everyone like family, the values like supporting, treating your body like a temple because you're only given one from God and you must cherish it. Um, the, lo- the list could go on and on, but I felt like I truly was able to transfer the thoughts that I mentally embraced into my heart come college. And I have to thank those protective factors at a young age that helped me diverge from depression and anxiety and unite with contentment and peace of heart. And um, yeah, thank you. So moving forward, we're gonna take it away with our last speaker. Katie, thank you so much for sharing your personal narrative and um, what has supported you. Take it away. Thanks. Um, So I don't feel so comfortable with this task. Um, I, the way I interpret our prompt to ourselves is to give a quick narrative about our identities and the conditions or experiences that have either been good or bad for our mental health. And part of what I don't like about this is I'm a little maxed out on identity politics at this moment. I don't want to think that because I'm Jewish or queer that it means that I'm at higher risk for, quote, poor mental health. I want who I am to be something that is powerful and capable regardless of my membership to certain groups. And if I'm being really honest, another part of me just doesn't feel comfortable sharing my experiences in identity politics frame. Um, but I think I have a way to do what's asked of me in a, with a slightly different take, and, and I hope it's okay. So perhaps my biggest risk factor or the main struggle for me in my quest for happiness has been learn how to feel and to manage my emotions. I wasn't taught how to process big feelings as a kid, and I, needed, and I needed to be taught because I had and still have big feelings. And there is some great information available online that walks parents through how to teach their kids how to process emotions, and it's kind of amazing. It's kind of powerful to learn and read about ways in which we can teach children how to have feelings and how to survive them. Kids and adults can be taught what feelings mean in their lives and can be taught healthy ways of managing them. It's incredible. I find this incredible. Um, And it's definitely not what I was taught as a child. Because I wasn't taught these skills and because I had big feelings, it eventually led to big conflicts with my family members and eventually romantic partners. Plus, I was really unhappy. I wasn't able to access feelings that I was feeling. I didn't know what to do with them, and they came out in extreme ways, like rage or bliss or overwhelm or rage again. I had a lot of anger, and it hit a point where I needed help, and I had tried to get help for years. I had been in cognitive behavioral therapy, and it wasn't particularly helpful. 
in those conversations, I wasn't actually addressing my real problem. I would just talk about things going on in my life and not bigger, bigger issues about learning how to manage my feelings or emotions. And eventually I hit a breaking point. I was so unhappy that I decided I would try anything, and a therapist recommended a process called psychodrama therapy. And I did it for three years, and it was life-changing. In this therapy, I learned how to identify my projections. I learned how to slow situations down. I learned how to identify when I'm feeling something. And I learned how to receive love and comfort and support. I still struggle with my feelings, but I have a healthy framework that I can utilize, and it absolutely helps. I'm not going to go into the specifics, but please look into psychodrama group therapy. It's not for everyone, but it's pretty powerful. So here's a new way I learned to process my feelings from this therapy and my new way of navigating them. Basically, if I get really upset and it's out of proportion to what's going on, I know I'm most likely dealing with a projection. That means I'm engaging with a situation or person who is not present. I'm transported to another time and place, and I'm playing out an experience where I have wounding and need some healing. So if I can identify that, and I have project, that I have projections, and that my feelings are out of proportion to what's going on, I am doing great. I mean, like, I am doing so good. I am so ahead of the game. And then I guess that's kind of step one for me. Then my next task is just to take a minute and breathe, to try to identify what's going on for me. Where am I? How old am I? Who am I bringing into this action, interaction? What am I feeling? And again, if I can do this, I get a fucking bowl of ice cream for dessert. I am doing so good right now. <laughs> then from there, I try to feel the feelings that I'm having from this other place. It's usually a kid place. If I'm a kid and I'm feeling really hurt or sad and alone, I try to let whatever feeling, whatever pain, grief, or sorrow hit me. I try to let the feelings wash over me, and I need to experience that to experience that sadness that I didn't get to feel when I was a kid. And it's really hard. For years, I didn't understand that I could survive these feelings. I thought they would kill me. And being taught ways to manage and have them has been life-changing. And this process is not easy for me. So the conditions that allow me to access my feelings in a healthy way are things that you would expect. Healthy food, water, exercise, social time, alone time, just like the things Remy and Shireen mentioned. And perhaps one of those things that I wasn't expecting that I actually need in my life um, that Newground has been providing also is intimacy. One of the things that I got of the, out of the psychodrama group process is incredible intimacy with a group of people who I love and care dearly about. And that hasn't been something that I have had a lot of in my life. And I think it comes with sharing vulnerabilities. And I had to be taught how to have my feelings and manage them in healthy ways. Now that I know this process, and I know the conditions that allow me to have my feelings, giving myself this time and process is my most important protective factor. Thank you so much, Katie. That was incredibly vulnerable, and I appreciate you sharing every bit of your story with us. Um, I have had a pleasure being able to moderate this podcast, and I want to thank everyone for stepping up and opening up here in this space. Um, are there any last minute things anyone wants to share? I just want to, yeah, like, thank you, Katie, because I was, like, reading mine, and when I got to, like, the New Zealand part, I was like, oh, like, this, like, this, like, touches my, like, a part of me, but I was like, I don't know, it's something, I feel like it shouldn't just touch me because I'm Muslim, like, I, I thought like, cause we've talked about Pittsburgh so much and like what that means and like any act of anti-Semitism or like any act of like hatred against any person. 
um, regardless of like any identity that you may hold. Yeah, and I'm. My intention is not to diminish anyone's identity, but rather that for me, my path to healing, my identities have kind of been irrelevant because my the core struggle that I've had isn't about, I mean, there might have been conditions about being queer or Jewish that have, have made things harder, but at the end of the day, I still need to figure out how to handle my own feelings. Mm-hmm. I still need to do that work. And so I'm, I'm not trying to diminish anyone's identity, but rather to say, okay, I'm gonna put that here on the side. And instead, I need to figure out a way to be happy. I need to figure out a way to like take my own, to, to have agency in my life. And that needs to be about me understanding my emotional landscape and figuring out a way to. Emotional landscape, y'all. <laughs> to, to get joy, to be happy. I want to say thank you for breaking down what it, how it is to unravel your feelings and the layers that you have to walk through because I think that's the hardest part of it all. Mm-hmm. Um, people can tell you, you know, just feel your feelings, get past it, you'll, you'll be great. But to understand how to embrace that and what that emotional roller coaster feels like to get to the other side of light is pretty powerful. So I'm sure a lot of listeners are going to appreciate that. Yeah, I don't know about you guys, but when I have feelings, it fe- it can feel very lonely. I can feel really alone in that experience. And being in spaces where I'm not alone in those, in those feelings is like, <laughs> it's so relieving. And to like feel the other people be like, I'm like, your feelings don't scare me. Like your feelings aren't going to kill me. I'm okay. Like I can tolerate them and I have space for them. And it's, it's like relief. It's it's balm to my soul to be able to to feel that, and it has, and and I still don't get enough of it. I could I feel like I could I could be in that space like all the time, and um and maybe that would be enough. Maybe all the time would be enough. Oh my god, relate so much. We need more space for that. Yeah, I agree. One thing that reminds me is that when I'm feeling alone, probably because I'm a bit of introvert, so sometimes I actually enjoy my alone time. Say if I'm in my mourning period, because my dad passed away, I was just like, just want to be by myself. And one way that actually helped me is that if I go out to the beach, just taking everything in, just enjoy the natural beauty, wonders of nature, it just really helped a lot for me. Sort of like it has some sort of detoxifying effect. Like all my mental clutters is like go being washed away by the waves of the ocean. So I kind of like that kind of method actually works for me. Yeah, me too. Being in nature is so, so healing. Oh my God, it's like God put all the magical powers and everything <laughs> surrounding us so that we can just soothe our minds and know everything's okay. I totally can relate to that. Well, and, and also I just want to name that if you're feeling sad and alone, um, you can also call me as a friend. Oh, like, thanks. <laughs> but I, because I know that feeling. And sometimes it's like, I just don't want to be alone. Very, very true. Like, usually if I'm, like, not feeling so well or if I'm feeling depressed, hard, long week, 
I would call up my friends, my good friends, who's okay to just lend his ears to listen to whatever I'm gonna say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that friendship shit is real. Like I don't, I'm just like feeling it like this year. Like I don't know. Um, I've just been like thinking. I'm like, damn. Like if you're my homie, like just like I don't even need like a full conversation. But like at least like once a week or like every two weeks, just like hit me up. Hit your friends up. Be like, how are you doing? Like, it ain't got to be, like, anything complicated. If there's one protective factor, it's having an ear to, to listen to your problems. That yeah, friendship cool. is huge. Another thing that I think would help for me is that, based on Islamic tradition, so I grew up in Muslim school, is the, um, is the principle to uphold common sense principles. You know, there's this thing in the Islamic tradition to always seek knowledge. Power of knowledge, for sure. <clears throat> Power of knowledge, for sure. <laughs> All right, guys, thank you so much. I hope you guys can take something away from this podcast. And um, please check out our other podcasts on marginalized identities and anti-Semitism and Islamophobia. Um and mental health. Thank you. Thank you, Shireen. Thank you for listening. Stay tuned for more information.